healthcare ecosystem is beginning an incredible transformation. If it continues at the current pace, we may hardly recognize the way that healthcare is measured, billed, and reimbursed. Welcome to Vynamics High Five Podcast and this episode, Trending Now. I'm Mindy McGrath, and I'm joined by my colleagues, my co-hosts, and fellow healthcare industry enthusiasts, Ryan Hummel and Mike Catone. Hey, everybody. Just a reminder that the Vynamic High Five podcast is our take on specific healthcare industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. In today's episode, we're chatting about some of the key forces that are creating a swirling amount of opportunity and challenge in the healthcare industry. We'll break down some of the most interesting ones that are in play and which sectors could feel the most impact. And as always, stay tuned for the end of the show's parting thoughts. It's that thing that we've either read, heard, or seen that we'd like to share with you. So how is everyone doing today? We all ready to go? Uh, I'm ready to get into it. I feel like I'm having a pretty productive summer so far, and hopefully we can keep that going through the end of it. I agree. I'm a big fan of this topic, Mindy, so I'm excited to chat about it. Okay. And we have a great guest. Yeah, absolutely. We do have a great guest. So without further ado, why don't we just jump into the topic at hand? Sound good? Let's do it. Let's do it. So we're in the middle of just, I would say, tremendous movement in the healthcare industry from policy, which we have seen kind of rolling out on a pretty frequent basis, to market dynamics. The ecosystem of the industry is evolving in reaction to many forces that it seems like are impacting all sectors And they all seem to be evaluating and considering these forces as they start to advance their business strategies. So from things like a soaring healthcare bill to expanding the expectation of value to this new era of open information and really these major policy shifts, these trends are both far-reaching and I think they're also resulting in swiftly changing market dynamics. So I thought it would be fun, guys, if we actually spent an episode taking a look at some of the forces that are emerging and really impacting the healthcare ecosystem and dive into what that impact on the industry as a whole may be, and then also talk about how some sectors might feel the heat on some of these, these um, forces, maybe a little more heavily earlier on than other sectors. When you look at like maybe five or six key forces or, or big forces that we're seeing in the marketplace right now, um, they're really a couple that stand out and feel like, I think when you think about them coming together, they're almost on a collision course, right, in a way that may really reshape the healthcare industry. Um, so things like evolving benefit structures, uh, consumerism, we've talked about this movement of the patient as a consumer and the centricity that efforts that are going along with that. Uh, the emergence of new customers and new decision makers. And in the last six months, we are seeing some huge efforts from you know, new entrants into the marketplace, such as Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase, to new types of alignments and vertical integrations, such as CVS making a bid to acquire Aetna and Dignity Health. So all of these emerging customers seem like one big trend that probably really stands out. And then we've also talked about the exponential growth of technology solutions and how we're seeing more and more of that entering into the marketplace. And Mindy, before we dive into these topics, I think we should discuss the emerging healthcare ecosystem. So the the ecosystem we're talking about is really predicated on healthcare sectors are converging like they never really have before. 
value chains are being integrated in ways that are blurring lines within the industry as organizations seek to harness opportunities uh, to create value. This ecosystem is going to be highly performance-driven, and it'll be supported by data and evidence. And ultimately, that emerging ecosystem is more than about is, is about more than just healthcare. It's about where you live, what you do, and the environment where you receive healthcare. And that's all going to be part of the equation in this updated ecosystem that we're all going to be a part of. And when you cluster the major trends, what you see is an ecosystem that looks pretty different than it looks today. There's a pace to this development that is, is really rapid, and, and I think we should all be prepared for big changes that sort of roll on top of each other and integrate with each other to, to really shift how we, how we look at healthcare. Yeah, I think it, that's the point that I think is so interesting right now is like just the the rapid pace of change. Like we always joke, right, that health the healthcare industry has always moved at uh, glacial speed, and all of a sudden we're seeing in the last year, I mean, just this rapid speed with which integrations are coming together and you know entrants are coming into the market. So I I think that is a key point that you make about just how fast things are actually happening. In this emerging ecosystem, or kind of the, the healthcare landscape of tomorrow, the delivery of care model is going to look very different. And we're talking virtual tools with apps and, and the, the kind of world of telehealth, which, by the way, Minnie and I were talking earlier, should be renamed virtual health, um, different sites of care. And we, we've already seen this decentralization of care delivery taking shape. It's going to happen even more in, in the future. And it is difficult to predict how much and how long it takes to realize a fully changed industry ecosystem. But these forces we are diving into, they represent the potential for creating seismic shifts, like I said, in the way that healthcare is conceived and delivered. The argument, right, to be made, or that we hear often, right, is that the system is too big, it's too complex, and quite frankly, it's just so self-insulated that these forces really can't have that much of an impact. But that's not what we're seeing, right, in the industry right now. I mean, there may be many healthcare leaders that are using these terms when they're discussing what this emerging healthcare ecosystem looks like. So the one that seems most notable to me um, and really blankets, I think, headline news regularly is the soaring healthcare bill. And I think it goes hand in hand with evolving benefit structures. We, we've seen throughout the news what, what you're seeing when you tune in and you see stories, you see study after study saying that the cost of healthcare and the affordability issue in the United States is a huge problem. It's front and center. And plan sponsors, so government or employers, the two largest payers in the U.S., they're facing exponential costs that stratify across the medical and pharmacy benefit continuum. And as these costs have increased, plan sponsors are reaching a tipping point in their budgets, and they're shifting costs to individuals at a rate that we've really never seen before. And that really gives us some challenge around affordability. And that's a, a challenge that we're seeing uh, personally coming out of our individual pockets. And I'm really curious to see how that impacts the overall healthcare bill. Probably the most significant consequence of this affordability factor is the idea of decreasing utilization of healthcare services. Uh, when there are high out-of-pocket costs, um, and that number continues to increase, by the way, it really, you know, from a macro level, discourages utilization. It is a tricky one because the industry wants appropriate utilization when individuals can't handle their bills and neglect the needed care. 
Um, the outcome has potentially catastrophic results, however, which the patient and industry are really impacted by. And according to a recent study by our friends at the Kaiser Family Foundation and HRET, up to 70% of respondents in this survey identified as struggling with medical debt, even while insured. That's 7 out of 10, folks. I think that's a shocking number. It seems shocking, Ryan, but think about what the average salary is for a family of four. Mm -hmm. And then you think about a high deductible health plan, right? And if somebody goes to an emergency room, that bill is not typically going to be very cheap. So while it sounds like a shocking number, it's not a surprising number. Yeah, I think that's a better way to say it. I'm initially I'm shocked from a humanities perspective, but then you think about the practical aspect of it and it's not really surprising at all. Consider the impact though. If you are a provider or a physician and patients are struggling to pay the bills, it will probably result in either medical bankruptcy or potentially high bad debt write-offs at the hospital level. And I think probably more importantly, sicker patients due to the affordability issues. So providers are having to think creatively and strategically about the use of credit payment plans, and alternative delivery of care solutions that offer affordable cost services. And for our friends in the life sciences world, the soaring healthcare bill trend creates a significant challenge in maintaining adherence and reducing abandonment at the point of fill. And from a health plan perspective, this force is being reflected in increased premiums, increased deductibles, co-insurance, and tiered formulary differentials that are creeping closer and closer together. One of the other things that we're seeing is that healthcare leaders are seeing that a soaring healthcare bill results in different behavior of patients. So last year, utilization decreased while spend actually increased, which means really in the short term, the response for most healthcare organizations when utilization goes down is that you're going to increase your price point to make up for that shortfall in volume. Um, So it doesn't look like a sustainable strategy, and I think this is going to be one of those forces that healthcare organizations very quickly are going to be forced to deal with because of the market forces. Yeah, and it goes back to the soaring healthcare bill uh, trend really speaks to the fact of appropriate appropriate utilization that we talked about before juxtaposed on healthcare literacy that we'll talk a little bit about with Sylvia, but it's just a real interesting dialogue around the um, utilization versus cost conversation. Right. And Mike, you mentioned the transfer of greater cost sharing from plan sponsors to individuals. And we're seeing that reflected, right, in the benefit constructs that are stealthily creeping into the industry. So when high deductible health plans or HDHPs originated, really most individuals that were in those plans had what we call a general deductible for both medical and pharmacy. And it aggregated, right? So everything was kind of bucketed into one deductible. But over the past couple of years, what we are seeing is that the construct is shifting. And a separate drug deductible is now being introduced into the benefit um, in addition to having the medical deductible, which really, once again, creates a lot of challenge when you're dealing with a soaring health care bill and you have individuals or or enrollees in a plan that are having to meet two different deductibles. Yeah, this is really a major deal, Mindy. For covered individuals, it really adds additional stress onto the affordability issue. Deductibles were adopted as a method for sensitizing individuals on the cost of care and engaging them to be better consumers of care. But the question that plan sponsors really need to consider is at what point do deductible plans oversensitize individuals and result in behaviors that could become catastrophic. 
And I can see this having an impact on things like abandonment rates for prescriptions mm -hmm. and overall just that lack of adherence that, that Ryan, you mentioned earlier. I mean, life sciences organizations will need to contend with the reality of this type of growing benefit construct. Um, I think the easy answer used to be those savings card programs that, that we talked about. And now that there are challenges with that because of the, um, the savings card accumulator adjustments, I think life sciences companies are really going to have to think uh, really about how they address the cost or the, the affordability challenge. When abandonment rates and adherence issues um, become exacerbated, it also impacts things in their organization like forecasting. So think about if you're a life sciences organization, right, and all of a sudden you have higher abandonment rates um, or you just have people that are falling off of their adherence curve sooner. I mean, it impacts the way that you have to think about actually um, how much product needs to be in the marketplace, how much product you actually manufacture. And the other aspects to this dual deductible is that in aggregate, really just more out-of-pocket expense is shifting. And perhaps, I think, what, and you could talk about this more, I think, Ryan, but Providers are going to need to address almost the cyclical nature of how individuals are going to behave once they hit their deductible. So think about it. You go through like the first half of the year and you're just kind of trekking along and then something happens and you hit your deductible. You know, the, what we see right now in terms of utilization curves is that all of a sudden then everybody's trying to get in all of their healthcare needs before the end of the year because they've already maxed out their deductible and their, their cost sharing changes once they get past the deductible and into their coverage range. So I think that that's going to be something that providers are going to have to think about from a staffing perspective. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, there's so many avenues we could go down in that topic and how staffing is affected and how we deliver care from a provider sector. We've talked about consumerism and how whether we've actually hit consumerism yet in, in the U.S. healthcare system, and there's probably like pockets where that happens. But I think you have to wonder, like, is it going to motivate people that use the healthcare system to actually price shop more often since they are now sharing a greater portion of the cost? And although there have been some studies that suggest that price shopping is still not really a consistently used practice in the industry. Um, you just have to wonder, like, to your point, when, when does a, a patient or somebody that acts like a consumer feel like they've reached, reached a tipping point where they actually do need to shop around for what their services are? And I think the, the industry as a whole has tepidly begun to share elements of cost and price. So being a savvy consumer still takes a considerable amount of work. Um, but I'm going to toss this out to you guys both. Uh, we've talked a lot about the soaring health care bill. We've talked about dual deductibles. Those are both trends I think are, are um, big trends. But what type of forces are you intrigued by? Or what do you think are impacting some of the sectors that you're working in? Well, Mindy, you talk a little bit about price shopping. And I would argue that healthcare care is probably the last bastion of any industry where people actually price shop. Every other industry that we talk about, you're looking for the best value and best price, and it just doesn't happen. So when you ask me what forces intrigue me, I would say the patient-consumer centricity trend, and that's very interesting to me. In a market where everyday increased cost sharing and more accountability is being placed on patients, they are being forced to take control of the healthcare that they utilize and will be at the center of the future healthcare ecosystem. While limitations exist in terms of how much a quote-unquote consumer 
a, pa a patient can actually be in the healthcare system where so many other decision makers control coverage, access, reimbursement, and cost. But the idea of the consumer at the center of this ecosystem is real enough to drive changes in how the healthcare industry communicates choice, convenience, cost, and quality. Yeah, Ryan, and when we think about the patient consumer moving to the center of care, I think we need to really understand what the definition of health becomes. I think it really expands, especially when you talk about generationally how individuals view their own health. For younger generations, I think there's a lot of people who are willing to focus on prevention, healthfulness, alternative therapies, wellness, physical fitness, nutrition. There are a lot of different ways to address and improve health. And being a patient will be different with these generations of users. And healthcare organizations have to consider how that might change their services and their product models. With the advancement of technology, healthcare is rapidly becoming an extension of a consumer's online life. And solutions like on-demand care may make its way forcefully into the healthcare industry. The key to this patient consumer centricity will be the need for healthcare organizations to capture and integrate strategic information from across the broader set of healthcare stakeholders to really understand these new patient needs. Considering this force, I think just defining what consumer centricity actually means to the end user may be the most important success factor of all because depending on who the user is, I mean, some people just frankly see themselves still as patients and others really want to be collaborative in their healthcare. Others want to really change what they expect of the healthcare system. I would say too, as more expectations are put on patients, too many folks still think of themselves as a patient. It's interesting, right? Because in the industry, oftentimes, individuals are still referred to as patients. Right. And that might just be like muscle memory, sure. you know, habit. Uh, but I do think there is a, a acknowledgement out there that people that use the, the industry services are starting to, to ask more questions mm -hmm. and demand a little bit more information. And I think another aspect of this whole idea around patient consumer centricity success will be basically healthcare organizations' capability in my favorite two words, activating and engaging the consumer. So in our Amazon podcast, which we just did a couple months ago, we were talking about right, how Amazon is really, really good at activating and engaging consumers. And this is an area where the healthcare industry has really struggled. So I think for this force, it's going to be one of those challenging things for the industry to really get their arms around to figure out what does it mean specifically to them when somebody acts like a consumer um, within the healthcare system, and how do they put the right types of solutions and services in place so that people feel like they, they want to be actively engaged and, you know, having a two-way dialogue with, with um, service providers around what their needs, wants, and, and expectations are. I mean, no doubt about it, with greater cost-sharing responsibility, consumer centricity is a force that is picking up steam. It's probably behind some of the other forces, but I definitely think we're going to hear a lot about it over the course of the next year. To that point, the other force that really intrigues me is the expanding expectation of outcomes and value. And we've talked a lot about that in prior podcasts. The word of the day, the month, and the year seems to be value. In a value-driven market, reimbursement will be dependent on measuring, monitoring, and asserting products and practices through outcomes, shared risks, and demonstrated therapeutic superiority. But in this emerging ecosystem, the ultimate success will be based on performance beyond status quo. 
What type of impact does a move towards value have on the entire industry on sectors? We have already seen the change in shared cost arrangements and new types of partnerships. Value-driven care is changing conversations, it's creating new collaborations, and it's also increasing curiosity as sectors will need to harness their value story. Value continues, I think, to be a work in process in this industry. Uh, but when you think about the concept of value, it really has been a catalyst for new entrants in the industry and new relationships between pharmacy and health plan sector, health plan and providers, you know, health plan and PBMs. I mean, think about a any sort of combination, and that is what we are seeing. And we're seeing it being driven by this whole idea that if you can own more of the value chain, you could actually mitigate and spread risk a little bit better. And as a result, entering into value-based contracts doesn't seem as daunting as it once did. Uh, and furthermore, I mean, I think the expectation that that is starting to develop is that value-driven healthcare is going to be more than just risk arrangements. Um, and if I could just add something, you talk about these new entrants in the healthcare industry. What I find fascinating, knowing all these different permutations of different life sectors, we haven't heard a lot of pushback from industry experts. A lot, most people we are hearing support these very interesting partnerships and collaborations, which you don't hear very often. Correct, yeah. And I think for healthcare organizations or collaborations, Buyers and consumers will be focused on things like price, yep. right? And when it really comes down to it and you strip away the opacity of the term value, ultimately payers, whether they're you know, plan sponsors such as employers or the government, are going to be saying to healthcare organizations, just prove it. I mean, tell me that your drug or your clinical practice is not only comparable, but it's superior in a real world setting. So give me the evidence prove it in the end that what I'm investing in is going to be worth my time, resource, and, and effort. And the impact, I think, to healthcare enterprises is probably going to be significant across the board as this expectation for outcomes really takes shape and the capabilities that are required will impact operate, things like operating model, right? And I was thinking about this the other day, like business models and even service models. All of those things are probably going to shift as healthcare organizations get not only more comfortable with the idea of value, but as the expectation for value starts to really broaden. I think companies are going to be taking an inward look at, at all of these aspects of their organization and, and trying to get ahead of where they think value is going to be. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um, I think those that harness the ability to deliver on superior medical, like a medical narrative, if you will, around outcomes and around value, and they have the capability to manage risk, are likely going to be the most successful organizations that we see in this evolving ecosystem. Yeah, and I, th I think we just touched on one of the forces that really deserves some attention. And that's the emergence of new customers and decision makers in an industry experiencing a host of collaborations and integrations. We have an incredibly fragmented healthcare system, which leads to a perceived opportunity to control costs and coordinate care through convergence, harnessing the value chain and managing risk. And I think we're just scratching the surface in terms of the new collaborations and integrations and some of the possibilities that they might bring. The impact to healthcare organizations will be rethinking business, operating, and service models to sustain and thrive in what will likely be a hyper-competitive marketplace. 
we're already seeing this take shape with these proposed mega integrations. And if I'm a healthcare enterprise, considering what this means, to me, it means organizing around these new customers will likely require new approaches, new capabilities, new technologies, new contacting strategies, and most importantly of all, new mindsets. Yeah, even within the provider setting, as health systems continue to gobble up practices and create these organized systems that are actually capable of managing risk, if I'm a life sciences organization or a leader in the life sciences world, the question I am asking myself is, how do I get in front of this emerging model where the influencers and decision makers are spread across the organization? What capabilities do I or my team need to develop? How does this impact sales approach, market access, or even medical affairs? And that's just one example of an emerging customer. I mean, this forces me to one of the biggest game changers in terms of challenging really established business practices in the industry. This is one of those don't wait to see it happen or you're already three years behind. Plan for this, don't have it, be done to you scenario. And honestly, with the way that technology is exponentially changing access and the organization of information, the impact of these emerging customers will be felt pretty quickly. Yeah, and Mindy, you know, you're really bringing up what I think is one of the biggest forces that's going to be responsible for reshaping and reframing the healthcare ecosystem, and that's technology. Enabling all of these forces is really going to require a lot of new and fascinating technology, not only from a capability standpoint, but from an integration standpoint. So how do all of these varied players actually talk to each other? And we're, we're thinking about how we're introducing these technology solutions in healthcare. And just, you know, they've been happening at such a high rate, and I think that's only going to get faster. And we're in an era where open information is everywhere. And the sophistication of the technologies and the data capabilities that they're enabling are they're really providing a lot of great visibility and a lot clearer ability to illuminate and influence so many critical aspects of healthcare, like the patient uh, or provider journey. What do you think the era of open information and technology really means to the healthcare system? So I think there are a few areas when we talk about technology that you can really hone in on. And the first is using technology to address the jobs uh, that really need to be done within the industry. So if we consider the jobs to be done for healthcare system, could be boiled down to promoting healthfulness, treating and curing injury and illness, delivering value, and mitigating risk. And once you kind of have narrowed what that technology is going to enable you to do, you have to assess that technology. So what is the what is the when and why of this technology? When when is it going to be used? Uh, what stage in the patient journey? How is it going to help? guide the care or direct the care and how is it going to help do things like mitigate risk and you know when we think about the life sciences sector the failure rate of drugs never making it to market is really high and this impacts the price of drugs that are approved so the job to be done in this example is to find more efficient and effective methods to mitigate failure rates in clinical development the right combination of this technology process and people may yield tremendously impactful outcomes for this specific job that we would see cascade into further things downstream, like pricing, when we talk about out-of-pocket expenses, reducing things like that as well. Yeah, I would really summarize by saying that from a patient and provider engagement uh, to channel relationships, benefit constructs, and account management, there are no sacred cows as these forces take shape. We're going to see changes to all of them. I think it's just a matter of 
how quickly and how big the change is going to be. For healthcare organizations, the status quo being rethought is, you know, it's being rethought because these forces have reached that far-reaching impact on strategy, business models, service and operating models, and ultimately on patients and consumers. Mike, I feel like the technology and the the open information uh, trend is one that we could talk about all day, along with probably a litany of other forces that either have very specific impact on sectors. But it is time to wrap this up because I want to have some time to get to our guest, Dr. Sylvia Torsky from Temple. And so we are going to end this discussion and move on to our interview. Joining us today is Dr. Sylvia Torsky. Uh, she's at the Department of Health Services Administration and Policy at the College of Public Health with Temple University. She's going to share with us her perspective on critical forces impacting the industry. Welcome, Sylvia. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's good. Uh, we're so happy that you could join us. We have a few questions for you about what is going on in the healthcare industry. Uh, bef but before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about your organization and what you do? Sure. Well, uh, the College of Public Health at Temple University has uh, master's programs, PhD programs. We also actually have a uh, Bachelor of Science program to help people who are kind of just getting started into um, public health. We're one of the first undergraduate uh, accredited public health programs. And the research work that I do mostly revolves around um, communities uh, that are uh, underserved. So I do a lot of work with uh, immigrant communities, a lot of work with refugee communities in terms of access to healthcare, quality of healthcare. And I also do work with um, individuals with disabilities and um, emergency management and their um, access to services. That's great. So it's very fitting to what we've been talking about today. So when you consider the key trends that are reshaping the healthcare industry almost daily here, um, which ones really jump out at you from a kind of a sensitivity perspective or as a criticality perspective? So that's a great question. Um, I could take that from two different perspectives. <laughs> so <laughs> one is the access issue, right? Um, is healthcare a public good? And if so, how are we making sure that people actually have the access they need to make sure the whole community is healthy? Because when you have a healthy community, it means that um, you know infectious disease is kept more under control, which um, makes sure that people aren't at risk. When you have a healthy community, you have a healthy population who do well at school, who can be productive workers. So from the economic sense, from a political sense, it's really important that people have access to good quality health care. And then the other issue is, you know, we live in a world of scarcity. There's mm -hmm. only so much to go around. So how do we make sure that in this world of scarcity that we get the kind of quality health care that we need and access for people? So um, this balancing act that we're trying to do and in the United States, are, are we doing the right things in terms of access, quality, and cost? Oh, that's great. Um, very interesting. And, you know, part of the high five podcast that we do here is we try to go beyond the headlines and go you know if you turn the few pages of the newspaper a lot of people don't get to read that part but when I bring this up the word stealth are any trends that you think are a little bit beyond the headlines and that our average listener or reader may not be seeing do you see any stealth stealth trends that are emerging in the healthcare industry putting you on the spot there yeah um there are a couple of things, and one is one that's happening uh, right in our neighborhood here in Camden. Have you guys heard of the Camden Coalition? Um, we have. I'd love you to hear more, though. It's a very exciting 
trend that has occurred just in our Delaware Valley. Yeah, exactly. So obviously Camden is a city that has a lot of need. So um, there are a lot of people who are living in poverty, which means they have um, less access to health care in the first place. And then on top of that, they have all these social determinants. I don't know, do you you guys know, have you talked about social determinants? We were, and actually I was going to ask you all about social determinants. (laughs) So, So why don't you fill our listeners in when you say social determinants, what, what do you mean? So it's a pretty broad term, but it means all kind of neighborhood-level factors, community-level factors, and individual-level factors that might um, impact on people's ability to access t- care, to follow through on doctor's orders, all the rest of those things that can end up having a really big impact in terms of outcomes. Mm-hmm. So Camden started to notice uh, what they call in um, – you know, EMT world, uh, frequent flyers. Yeah. <laughs> so people who uh, would be show up at the ER, you know, multiple times a month, sometimes over 20 times a month. And a lot of it had to do with not having adequate housing, not having, um, not having an adequate access to food, not being able to get their medications that they need. Mm-hmm. Like all these things that impede on their abilities when they have all these chronic conditions to be able to follow through and stay healthy. And it costs the healthcare system a lot of money. So I think, I mean, this is a big example of um, bringing in uh, case managers, caseworkers to kind of work on these social determinants Mm -hmm. for people. But I think it's happening not only in the Camden Coalition, where they bring in social workers, they go to the person's home, they help them make sure that they have safe housing and uh, housing that's uh, that they can stay in for a long period of time instead of couch hopping or um, you know insecure housing situations. Making sure they get access to SNAP benefits so they have adequate food. Making sure they get access to uh, Medicaid or Medicare benefits so they have access to medications. They can follow through on the doctor's orders and take care of their chronic conditions so they don't end up in the very expensive ER multiple times a month. And this is happening not just at the Camden Coalition, but I think a lot lot of um, healthcare systems are kind of seeing the importance and need of uh, these caseworkers. So it's going from very vulnerable populations. Um, this is something that happens a lot in the HIV community. So, um, you know, they'll have case managers helping making sure that people get access to the meds, that they have safe food and housing, they get access to drug treatment if they need mm-hmm. it, et cetera. Um, and it's moving from vulnerable populations, I think, to, uh, you know, to uh, more healthcare systems in general, right. where they're recognizing that everybody has these social determinants to some extent or another. So how can we help people live a healthier life and actually save money uh, in the end, as well as have better quality health. Mm-hmm. And I think the stealth trend there is that utilization of some professionals that we don't typically think of when we think of primary health. They're making sure that our patients are okay. EMTs, social workers, that that type of worker that have a very, when you're including social determinants in the overall um, diagnosis of the health of a population, utilizing those services better. So that's, that's great. That's a good point. Um, you know, I'm going to take, you, you gave a great example about our local, some local s- trends that have occurred. Um, if I would go outside of the local area, maybe even outside the state of where we're at, Pennsylvania, and look across uh, other countries, is there any global trends you see? Um, I know you're a big, a voracious reader and policy person. Is there any global trends you see that could be applicable to the United States or something that just gets you interested in, in, in the future? Um, I think that 
other countries uh, may be doing some things that we're just starting to think about and might not actually be super acceptable to the U.S. population yet. Right, right. Uh, I'm going to use the example of cost-benefit analysis, okay. right? So um, cost-benefit analysis is something that uh, is required in many countries in order to approve certain medications or certain procedures. Um, so not only looking at um, health outcome, but looking at like what you're getting for the money that you're spending, because there could be five or six different options for treating a particular health outcome. Mm -hmm. So if you look at those five or six options, where are you really getting bang for your buck? And in the United States, people feel a little iffy about that. They don't want to think about um, cost when they think about um, health outcomes. But the truth is that um, because we're trying to provide services for a large range of people, we want to make sure that when we spend our money, we're spending our money wisely, not necessarily on the newest technology, but on the best, best. technology. Yep. So um, I don't, it's definitely not a new trend. It's something that, pe that uh, other countries have been doing for quite a while. But um, I think it's something that uh, the United States is uh, starting to uh, not not uh, incorporate overtly because it's actually not allowed to be incorporated in many of the government programs, but thinking about it. Yeah, and, and I agree that wonks like us hear about this often and read about it, um, but from you know someone on the streets or someone that may not be in the healthcare industry, they may not know that this is the way other folks do healthcare in other countries. So I think spreading the word and at least acknowledging that there are other avenues to an analyze the way we treat people is something we should consider. Right, exactly. And it's uh, it's not putting a, a dollar value on people's lives as much as it is saying, you know, here are these different options and which treatment option is going to give us the best outcome. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not as, uh, it might not be as, um, uh, as monetary as people think, even yeah. though it does take into account the idea of how much is it costing, but it's how much is it costing in terms of what we're getting for our dollar. Right, and speaking of the dollar, you know, my next question has to do with the idea of cost versus price. Um, <laughs> it's it's a, one of our one of the conversations that we have a lot here on this podcast. But uh, I'd ask, do do you feel or what what are your what is your what are your thoughts around the prioritization of cost versus price? Um, when should one be prioritized over another? Um. You know, I mean, the question is, you can do a cost-benefit analysis, and you can decide what really gives you the best bang for your buck, but you might not be able to afford that, right? Yeah. So cost and price both play a role. Um, but I think uh, in terms of, like, actual cost, it takes into account so many other things in terms of benefits that that's really what you need to think about. So if something costs more up front, but the benefits are greater. I, I, and, you know, that's one of the difficulties with our healthcare system, I think, because um, the way that the U.S. healthcare system is built with multiple insurance companies, with people um, switching jobs, switching insurance companies. So uh, the cost might accrue to one insurance company and the benefit accrue to a different insurance company. Right. So, um, or, you know, or one employer versus a second employer. So it can be sometimes difficult for people to think beyond the immediate. But if we think about the fact that, you know, people circulate through the system and that eventually benefit accrues to everyone, that um, we should think more in terms of actual cost instead of upfront price. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great point, especially in, we talk a lot about the fact that policy change and things that happen are not overnight successes in healthcare. They take right. sometimes generations to tell if they work or not. And in our everyday society and the idea of happening now, right now, we want right. things to happen now. It's very difficult to um, juxtapose those two thoughts. So it's really, 
It's a good yeah. point. And even the politics behind it, right? Yes. If our political cycle is every four years, every six years. Yeah. Every two years from a House of Representatives standpoint, yep. Exactly. So, so if, if the cost is now and you're selling the cost now, but the benefit doesn't accrue till well after your next election, it's hard to, you know, get enthusiasm for yeah, from those a corp- kind of policies. Th- that's a great point. And, we t- you know, from a corporation standpoint, they talk about quarterly benefits from a, from a policy and politics perspective. It's what who what do I need to do to get reelected? Exactly. It's very interesting. Yeah. So I think we have time for maybe one more question. We could talk all day about <laughs> this stuff. It's great. But um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about, speaking of policy, the health care policies that have happened recently, you know, everything from the Affordable Care Act to any of the recent, uh, it feels like every week there's a new, um, new news brief from the CMS. But w- can you share your thoughts on any recent health care policies and how, uh, and if Pick one and think about how it's impacted our industry, our healthcare industry, the most or the least. Okay, so I'm going to go broad and yeah. talk about the Affordable Care Act. Perfect. And you know, it's very political because you have um, you have the Republicans who believe that the Affordable Care Act was not the right way to go in the first place. You have the Democrats who think that maybe the Affordable Care Act could work if we just tweak it a little bit, or even Democrats who think we should scrap it all and go to a you know a single payer system. Sure. <laughs> so you have all these like really deeply held um, political and philosophical beliefs that underline the Affordable Care Act. But what's happening now is because. Um, because the Republicans haven't been able to just wipe away the Affordable Care Act in one uh, fell swoop, they're pulling out different pieces. And the difficulty with that is that um, everything's so interrelated, right? So if you pull away the individual mandate, which of course they haven't actually repealed, right? It's still there, but it's not being enforced. So effectively it's repealed, even though it hasn't actually been repealed because there's no enforcement mechanism for it. Um, So then what you have is you have people who might decide not to join the system until they get sick, which can have a negative impact on insurance companies. It can have a negative impact on hospitals. Um, it can have a negative impact on a, a lot of different pieces of the healthcare industry. And then on top of that, you have this new movement to um, pull away, uh, you know, the protections for pre-existing conditions. Um, which makes sense when you look at it in terms of um, no individual mandate (laughs) because, uh, you know, what the health insurance companies are saying is if you're forcing us to take people who have pre-existing conditions, then uh, we should have this big pool of healthy people to To subsidize, to cross-subsidize that. So, um, but pulling that away, uh, we already know that these high-risk pool insurance pools don't work. So the people that are going to end up hurting are the individuals who will lack access to health care and have multiple chronic conditions uh, or very significant uh, chronic conditions that require a really high cost to treat. Uh, the hospitals who may have to treat them um, for free mm-hmm. <laughs> because they don't have the money to pay for that. And then there's no more um, pool of money for uncompensated care coming through. So really hospitals are going to be the ones that are pinched in the middle um, because they're going to have to provide the care, and yet there's no um, funding available to kind of uh, subsidize mm-hmm. that care. It's a great point, and, and we already know the hospitals um, in the, the cross-sector world of healthcare are pinched enough these days. So they pinch them even more may be detrimental. Yeah, and that could affect access to care in multiple ways for populations that aren't affected by pre-existing conditions. Great. So. Well, thank you. We could talk all day about this, and we just might, just not on the air. But thank you for your time, Dr. Tursky. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to be So as we wind down this episode, it is time for our parting thought. 
And Katone, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So my parting thought comes from a, a podcast, actually, that I was listening to. So I like recording them. And I like listening to them as well. And it was a podcast by uh, NPR called Planet Money. I'm sure a lot of you have heard about it uh, or listened to it. And the podcast topic was about uh, inventions that happen by chance. And they specifically spoke about the Enchroma uh, glasses that are used to correct uh, colorblindness. And they went through an entire story sort of talking about the original event inventor. He had developed, he had helped develop glasses that surgeons used to shield their eyes from lasers uh, during surgery. And he was wearing them outside as sunglasses one day and uh, handed them to his friend. They were playing soccer. And his friend happened to be colorblind. And his friend was shocked to see these orange spikes on the field uh, that he had never seen before. And it turns out that specific, uh, that specific lens that blocked the lasers also enabled his friend to see the color orange for the first time. So uh, fast forward 10 years worth of uh, research, uh, grants from the National Institutes of Health, and you had a fully developed Enchroma product that sort of came out the other end of that pipeline and that research. But the most interesting thing to me was during that podcast, they talked about sort of the ability of chance to create uh, really great inventions. And they talked about how one way that you can increase the, the, uh, the opportunity for serendipity is to increase diversity. So by working with and socializing with people who aren't exactly like you, you're going to get a lot of different perspectives. Uh, and I just thought it was a really interesting way to sort of in order to catch lightning in a bottle and create an invention by chance, your best bet is to talk to people that you don't normally talk to and to work with people you don't normally work with. And you'll never really know what's going to come out of the other end. So that was just really interesting to me. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Yeah, you picked a good one. Might be the best parting thought of the I day. Know. I know. Mine will pale in comparison. <laughs> okay, so my parting thought is based on an article from Kaiser Health News that was entitled, When Credit Scores Become Casualties of Healthcare." So as we were discussing the evolution of the patient as a consumer, this article really just resonated as a reality that we often don't consider. Uh, while the medical bills are a leading source of personal bankruptcy in the United States, a far more, far more common problem is this widespread damage that medical bills do to people's credit and the far-reaching consequences that it has when it comes to things like filling out mortgage applications or financial aid for school or financing an auto purchase. I mean, with the rise in high deductible health plans, this issue becomes more pressing for consumers who have greater share of costs. It was a thought-provoking article, so check it out if you have an opportunity. Another good one. Now, I mentioned, this is Ryan, I'm going to give you my parting thought. I mentioned that mine pales in comparison. Uh, it's a little talk about vitamin D. So uh, just a random thing that happened is I've had a lot of conversations recently about the idea of supplementing through vitamin D pills. And I've always taken a vitamin D supplement based on conversations in the past I've had with doctors. And I just had a conversation with a family member about getting tested. And uh, this family member was very low on vitamin D and it was prescribed. So just speaking of serendipity, I follow um, an app that amalgamates a bunch of healthcare articles all at once. And there was more than three articles just this week about vitamin D. And one of them was about the fact that greater levels of vitamin D are associated with decreasing risk of breast cancer. Um, and then the other article that I wanted to mention was the importance of 
vitamin D in preventing cholesterol cancer, which, which affects millions of people every day. And there was a study done by the Harvard Business or Harvard Medical School, excuse me, that's just stated that in this clinical trial, um, patients that uh, consumed or took vitamin D supplement had a greater risk of avoiding colon cancer later in life. So just, you know, a, a fact that I thought was really interesting in all of these confluent uh, conversations I had, and it all landed on some scientific study that I thought I'd share with folks. This concludes today's High Five podcast, and we want to hear from you about this episode or other topics that may be on your mind. For additional conversation about the work that we are doing in the healthcare industry or a deeper follow-up on how Dynamic may assist you with your business initiatives, please contact us at 267-930-4711 and share your message. And for links on anything that we spoke about today, visit this episode's podcast description. Until the next cast, have a great day.